Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And this week we're going to talk about uh, Exodus Refugee Immigration's request to start resettling refugees in Bloomington and this overall issue of resettlement, and it's fairly controversial. We'll be talking with three people on our program today. Elizabeth Dunn is here. She's an associate professor of international studies at the School of Global and International Studies. And Diane Legomsky is here. She's the chair of the Bloomington Refugee Support Network. And Yasmin Fasher is here. She is a resettled refugee from Sudan and current student at Indiana University. You can join the program by giving us a call at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Well, thank you all for being here. It's a very uh, interesting topic and complex topic, and I want to uh, turn to Elizabeth Dunn first to sort of give us the overview of the resettlement topic, and then we'll break it down closer to Bloomington. Sure. So the biggest problem we face now globally is that there are more than 65 million displaced people around the world. That's more than the population of France. And that's the highest number of displaced people in the world since the end of World War II. So we're facing a global crisis of displacement. And the institutions and the plans that we've had for dealing with that crisis just can't cope with this enormous volume. So the system of keeping people temporarily in refugee camps until they could return home is no longer working, particularly because wars are lasting so long now. So the average number of years that a refugee is displaced is now 17 years. So to keep people um, from spending big chunks of their lives in refugee camps, we've started trying to resettle people in an organized way that will let them really begin their lives again. So the 65 million number, that's all from various wars going on around the globe? Yeah, that's um, because since the end of the Cold War, what we're seeing is globally a rise in the number of small-scale, long-duration civil wars. And those civil wars aren't fought on a battlefield. They're fought in urban areas and in towns and villages, and they displace a very large number of people. So, Yasmin, you are uh, you have experience with this. You're a student at IU now, but when you were young, you were in Sudan, correct? Yes. So tell, I, tell me about that experience. Yeah. I was in Darfur, Sudan. That's where I was born. I was born in Fasher. Um, and about three years after I was born, my father, to escape being tried for political treason, uh, moved to Chad and then from Chad to Egypt, where we were resettled to Phoenix because the temperatures were like kind of the same as um, Sudan. Um, and so we stayed in Phoenix for a little while. And then we speculated that we might have had a relative in Indiana. So we just packed up and moved to Indiana. Uh-huh. So where'd you move? Where to did, Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne. Yeah. Okay. And you were in Fort Wayne for a few years and then Indianapolis, right? I was in Fort Wayne until about middle school. And then the rest of the time I was in Indianapolis. So what was your early experience? Um, I guess my... One of the most prominent experiences for me was the fact that my parents didn't speak English coming to America. And so I kind of took on the role as trans of translator from until about middle school, actually. And I would have to, like, go to the bank with them and, like, kind of, like, look at the mortgage or things like that. Things that children shouldn't have to be doing. But because my parents didn't speak English, I felt the need to take on that role mm-hmm. and do this translating thing <clears throat> with them. Mm-hmm. And Diane Legomsky is with us. She's the chair of the Bloomington Refugee Support Network. So let's break this issue back down into what's going on here in Bloomington now. 
Well, in, in Bloomington, there were two kind of major movements, the Bloomington Refugee Support Network, as well as a lot of allied organizations and the city government are all working hard to develop resources to welcome the refugees. There's an awful lot of positive spirit. We're working, of course, with IU as well. And we're developing a directory of local resources that will help the refugees get settled. And also will ease the burden a little bit on taxpayers because a lot of people were finding are volunteering their time to help with, with expertise. Mm-hmm. And then there also are concerns, which of course we understand. Uh, grassroots conservatives have voiced several concerns about safety, about our, our cultural integrity, um, and about medical issues. There, I, I, I believe these fears are all really can be satisfied. Uh, they they really aren't the risks that a lot of people think, but it requires dialogue really to work through those. I uh, think one of the important things to note is that we're talking about in the first year only 60 people. 60 mm-hmm. out of 65 million is a pretty small number here yeah. in Bloomington. Yeah. And the other thing is that um, resettling refugees actually is not very costly, precisely because so much of the work is done by volunteers. So I read some research last night that looked at refugees settled here since the end of World War II, and the average time it takes for a refugee to become a net contributor to our economy is five years. So we, we spend some money over a five-year period to get them resettled and started again, and then they become taxpayers, contributors to the economy. And when you mm-hmm. say 60 people, we're talking about in family, so 20 families. 20 families. Right, yeah. right. And, and also, I think a lot of the fear is coming from what people hear about what's happening in Europe, and so, which, which is very different than what will be happening here. Our vetting system is completely different, much more rigid than for any other group entering the U.S. In fact, the medical vetting is, is complete. No communicable de- diseases will be passing over the borders mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, and, and also, I, I'm not sure everybody realizes that you know refugees are in a different category from immigrants, from people coming here on visas, a much more rigorous vetting process. So this idea of a resettlement community, is that mm-hmm. fairly new then, Elizabeth? As you're, you're talking about these, you know, these camps that really mm-hmm. haven't been temporary. So this idea yeah. of mm-hmm. a community is what we're going to create. Is that what's new here? Or has this been around for a while? Um, I think that the, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees has for the last 20 years pushed three what they call durable solutions. One is repatriation to country of origin. The second um, is uh, resettlement. uh, And the third is social reintegration in the place where they are now. So clearly, we're the third option, resettlement. But UNHCR now is saying that it's really important for refugees to be a part of whatever community they're located in, that reintegrating them into social life is incredibly important for their good and also for our good because refugees can refugee camps can be in many ways very dangerous places so getting people back mm-hmm. into the community to be normal people again is incredibly important mm-hmm. Yasmin it's so interesting to me that you ended up in Texas because it was hot Phoenix <laughs> or Phoenix, Phoenix I'm sorry because of the temperature I mean how did you sort of acclimate then to 
being there, were there other similarities other than the climate? <laughs> Absolutely not. My parents are really spontaneous. We first were we were in New York for a little while, and I think they went through like one blizzard, and then like with their broken English, like hottest place in America, Google that. And so we were off to Phoenix, and so yeah, I mean that's how we ended up there. And then in Indiana, which is like um, like fast fact, it's, so I'm from the Zahawa tribe of Darfur, and in Fort Wayne, Indiana actually has the largest Zahawa refugee resettlement site in the entire country. So it wasn't by accident, but absolutely not. Okay. Our phone numbers are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So we know this is sort of, this is controversial in a lot of ways. And Governor Pence, of course, has weighed mm-hmm. in and said he didn't want the government to be supporting uh, refugees coming to Indiana anymore, but but refugees are still mm-hmm. able to come to Indiana. Mm-hmm. I think what happened, so what happened earlier, was it earlier this week that the mm-hmm. State Department yes. actually put its, uh, its imprint on this. So what are you, you know, what what comes next? The the 20 families, are you looking for host families? Are you looking for places for people to stay? How are... Well, right. Only, I just want to say something about where they're coming from before Diane tells you what's going to happen when they get there. we think about half of them will be from Syria and the other half will be from Congo. They'll be Congolese. So it'll be two different ethnic communities, two different language communities. And in that way, we're going to have to provide services in two different ways for different groups. So mm-hmm. we're looking forward to quite a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And unfortunately, and IU, as well as um, se- several other organizations, in mm-hmm. fact, in town, um, have translators which is great, um, and we're we're trying to get ready for all the refugees you know who come. Mm-hmm. They they will be. It'll be about twenty families, as Elizabeth said. That'll be coming over, roughly a nine month period. They're not all coming at once. So the two things that are um, well, the immediate thing that will be happening is Exodus will be moving a sub office mm-hmm. down here, and the, and it'll be work, working with its Indianapolis office. As far as the network and the rest of the city is concerned. Um, and our network, by the way, I should say, has about you know 200 active volunteers, but um, that actually represents about 40 organizations in town that are working on this. Um, the two things we're working on are developing, again, resources to help Exodus, to help other people who are going to be helping the refugees, and to help the refugees. And also this directory will be available to other social service agencies working with people in need, not just refugees. And the other major thing will be our working with Exodus to find sponsors. Every family will have one sponsor of about 10 people who will follow up after Exodus's orientation and just stay with that one family. The sponsors probably will be from one organization, one congregation, or just 10 people working. And each 10-person each sponsor will be helping that family with everything, giving them rides to the grocery store, helping them learn how the transit system works, everything you can think of when you're trying to settle into a brand new place. It's really important to distinguish between the co-sponsorship model that we use here in the United States and the private sponsorship Mm -hmm. model in Canada. Mm -hmm. In Canada, the government allows people to privately um, uh, sponsor refugees and pay for them. So the, the sponsors in Canada, private sponsors, will take on financial responsibility. Here in the United States, the federal government is the official sponsor of all refugees. So our co-sponsors are not taking financial responsibility for any of the refugees. They're really 
being their first neighbors, their first friends, their first guides to American life. So in, in that sense, the sponsorship is sort of mm-hmm. social and um, and friendly rather than financial or, or um, governmental. Mm-hmm. So the city of mm-hmm. Bloomington won't have any financial responsibility. Absolutely not. The refugees get about 90 days of rent support and they get six months of utilities. Um, They'll get more language lessons over a longer period of time and some cultural adjustment um, support from Exodus for a few years. But uh, the city of Bloomington is not on the hook financially at all. Yeah, they they will be entitled to certain programs, of course. You know, most of those are federal, like the SNAP program, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think the mayor's office does want to help them find resources. So they'll be putting in some, some quote, man hours, you know, right. to help them. But, it, yeah, it shouldn't be a burden on Bloomington itself. I mean, there is going to be a cost to the taxpayers, but it's a short-term, relatively speaking, a short-term investment in what really is a long-term net enrichment of 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 our whole community with the refugees that would be a a cost in the way coming from social services is that is that what you mean or sure there'll be some of that um the refugees will be entitled to medicaid to snap and some other programs but this is a short-term investment for the refugees um Again, it won't take them long to become self-supportive. The sponsors we anticipate, which is all volunteer, all volunteer, there's no taxpayer funds involved, they'll be staying with each family for probably a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and really helping them with anything they need to know, like you say, being being their their friends and their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting to uh, to break this down because the ten families from Syria, ten families from the Congo, Perfect. and Bloomington has um, giving back to Africa, right? Yes. Which is a, already a connection with the Congo, so yes. that should be though that should be a little Absolutely. bit easier, I and mean, that's already in place. Mm-hmm. And the Syrian refugees seem to be what everybody's concerned about and what all the, you know, all the, all the, the criticism and the concerns are about. And I guess I want to ask, Yasmin, when you look at this from your perspective and you hear people talking about, oh, don't let refugees into the United States or our community shouldn't accept refugees, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, what are, what are your personal thoughts on that? Well, my mind automatically goes back to a time where um, being in Phoenix or even being in Fort Indiana, that um, we in our living rooms, we did not have couches or anything like that. We had beds because that's what happened in Dark War Sudan, where like beds were like the staple like like type of furniture and there was no such thing as like couches or anything like that. And I would always be like embarrassed to invite my friends over because they're just like, why is there a big like a bed in your living room? Um, and that I, for my parents, they didn't feel American enough because they weren't as accepted here and they they didn't know what it meant to be an American. So they kind of reverted back and were like, you know, we're Dafwari, we're Sudanese. And so that's how we're going to be here. That's how we're always going to be. And um, and like, I guess the question, the central question for me is like, you know, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be like a patriot of America? And so that's that always takes me back to that time. Mm-hmm. So what's your answer to that? Um, <laughs> I feel like an American is anybody who, who like, I. that's a really difficult question mm-hmm. for me to answer because, like, you have all of these, you know, from the media, from, like, just books. Everything that I've learned in America is, you know, white is right, that everything mm-hmm. that you do, if it's not white, then it's not right. And um, being black and having this intersectionality as well, not being Muslim, being Muslim and not being Christian, being black and not being white, like, Everything that I've learned um, from, you know, like talking in Ebonics when I was in high school or like I wasn't wearing the hijab then, I was like ridiculed or like, Yasmin, you speak too white to do that or things like that. And so 
for me, to what it means to be an American in the general sense is to be Christian white, but um, that's not true. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. One of the things we're going to be working on is um, helping helping refugee families integrate into the community and learn about uh, not only the Bloomington resources, but the Bloomington culture, Bloomington cultural events, and just the way a lot of things go on in this country and in Bloomington, but also. The sponsors, with Elizabeth's help, um, the sponsors will be learning quite a bit about the refugee family culture also. So there can be a mixture, and the family doesn't feel as though it has to abandon what it, what it has. That would be tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there'll be a nice blending, and mm-hmm. it'll really enrich everybody. Mm-hmm. So these refugees won't just be in Bloomington city limits, will they, or, or, or will they? How, well, we how want to make... Out? Yeah, we want to make sure that they're um, near bus lines. That'll be critical. Um, And in terms of finding the right school for them, that'll be important. We'd like them to be not far from medical facilities if needed and so forth. Um, So that's going to be a a primary concern. And also, we need for them to be, or Exodus needs for them to be fairly close um, as far as Exodus is concerned because they'll be helping in a very hands-on, direct way day-to-day for quite a while, so it, it wouldn't help anybody if they were living too far, um, you know, if they were living way outside the city limits where r- there is rural transit, but that that's really won't be sufficient, so mm-hmm. um, probably within areas served by Bloomington um, mm-hmm. Transit. All right, our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Yasmin, I don't want to get too far away from your answer because it was really interesting to me to hear you say that Mm -hmm. since we're all, I think we uh, in Bloomington in particular, and most of us are Mm -hmm. sort of taught as we're growing up that America, to be an American isn't to be just Christian and white. It's to be welcoming and to be... Um, you know, a melting pot and to accept immigrants. And that's, I think, even people who maybe have um, been pretty politically active in opposing the refugees, I'm sure that when they were going through their grade school and high school days, those were were things that they were taught. So, Um, See, the term melting pot kind of I don't know if I like that term very much. Mm-hmm. I like the term salad bowl, and I think mm-hmm. that a high school teacher must have like talked to me about that and how. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know. I've, I've read that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like everybody can be distinct yet live in their, um, like have their distinct cultures but still be an American. And um, like I feel like there's something overreaching. There's something that's like this is what makes America America, not necessarily like, you know, this skin color, this religion, or this creed. But um, I guess the way that I grew up and the way that I've seen like the world, especially here in America, mm-hmm. that that's it does it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And that there is a specific type of person that you need to be to be considered an American, a true American. And I get these questions like, you know, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from Indiana, but like, where are you really from? <laughs> and you know, I get these questions a lot. But then it's like, for me to pose that same question to somebody who is white and Christian, like, where are you really from? And they'd be like, well, I'm just American. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And like, it doesn't go further back than that. And so I feel like that's. For me, that I, it's a it's a microaggression that I don't like. I don't like mm-hmm. to hear that. So yeah. it's not a smooth process, but we do have a lot of evidence about how this country has um, brought refugees in before. You know, during the aftermath of the Vietnam War, we brought in over two million people from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
uh, some of them ethnically Vietnamese, some of them ethnically Hmong. And um, that was incredibly successful. You know, I think they have become really productive members of the American community. And we've gained some really fantastic restaurants. Um, so um, we also brought in, you know, tens of thousands of Cubans from the Mariel Boatlift um, in the 80s. Uh, again, they've settled in Miami. They have, they are a distinct community in many ways, but they've also become a, a part of our American fabric. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. That, that's true with the Hmong community. You're, you're so right in Wisconsin that they haven't lost their culture, although it's it's something that worries the elders there because the younger ones, you know, are becoming very, quote, Americanized. But I, I know, you know, my own grand, all four of my grandparents were immigrants during difficult times. And when they came here, they felt obliged to, you know, fit in and assimilate. And as a result, passed on nothing of their language or their culture to their children or my parents. So I know you, you end up knowing nothing about your culture, and we do, we don't want that to happen here in Bloomington. There's um, and there is sort of a, a funny, thing here where I've heard a lot of people say they want them to, become part of our culture, and I don't even know what our culture is. I mean, it's not some, simple thing. It's 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 so diverse anyway. Mm-hmm. All right, we're starting to get some phone calls, but I think what we'll do is take a short break, and then we'll come back and go to the phones. We're talking about. Uh, refugee resettlement in, in Bloomington and elsewhere in the nation. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking with three guests today about uh, refugee resettlement in uh, Indiana and elsewhere. Elizabeth Dunn is Associate Professor of International Studies at the School of Global and International Studies. Diane Legomsky is the Chair of the Bloomington Refugee Support Network. And Yasmin Fasher is a resettled refugee from Sudan at the age of three and currently a student at Indiana University. If you want to join our program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So let's go to the phones. And Owen is first. Owen? Hi, Bob. Um, my question has to do with sponsorship. My church, the First Presbyterian Church of Bloomington, sponsored refugees um, from Hungary after 1956, from Vietnam after 1975. Um, can churches as a group 
um, sponsor the uh, refugees in this uh, current program? Diane? Yes, absolutely. Often what a church would be doing is having some group, however large you wish, some group um, commit to saying, yes, we will sponsor a family on, on behalf of our church, First Presbyterian in your case. As you say, you have a, a, a tremendous history of, of helping refugees. Um, and then what you would do is talk with Exodus. As Elizabeth said, it's, it's basically a kind of co-sponsorship. You would talk with Exodus about the things that the refugees will need. We're, we'll be talking to you, too, via the network. The things, um, the items, the services that refugees will need from your group that Exodus is not able um, to provide. And they usually ask for a multi-year you know, commitment. Your membership in the, in the committee might change. But it's often done um, you know, in the name of a particular church or congregation or other organization. It doesn't have to be, though. It can be a bunch of independent people working together, too. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to say that um, the presence of both of those families, we were not evangelizing or anything like that. Mm -hmm. in the right. Members. Um, but we learned a great deal from um, those two families. Right. That's such an important point. It's, mm -hmm. it's so mutually enriching. Thanks, Owen. Appreciate the call. Okay, Bob. All right. Let's go next to Stan from Bloomington. Stan? Uh, hi. I'm interested in the kind of services that refugees can receive, especially the adults who may not have had the training for the sorts of jobs that might be available here to them, and, and whether or not local uh, organizations or, or individuals would be uh, involved as tutors if necessary. Yeah, we've, it's important to think about the groups that are coming as really different. So um, Syrians can be both people from rural areas, but many of them are urban middle-class professionals. So what they'll really need is language training. Some of them will need to be recertified in their profession or in an allied profession. So a doctor may not be able to go back to medical school to recertify as a doctor here, but may, for example, get a certification as a, a nurse practitioner. Um, so there's some of that that's going to need to happen, and Exodus will help that. Most of what they're going to need uh, from the get-go is just intensive language training. And one of the things that we are hoping to set up is um, a, a, something I saw in Germany this summer that was working with Germans uh, helping Syrians and Afghans, which is an international cafe. Um, a place, uh, someone to loan us a church basement or a library where we can get a coffee pot and a teapot going and people just sitting down and talking with each other. Um, it's a great place for the newcomers to ask the locals for help in managing paperwork and finding things on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's mostly a terrific place for language exchange. Mm -hmm. right. Thank you. Right. Well, yeah, we'll also be, uh, it's exactly, that's the critical part that they'll be getting a lot of um, ESL or ENL. And they're also going to be getting skills in managing bank accounts. This will be coming from the network um, sponsors. Um, in managing a bank account and learning how to use the transit system, help with clothing and things like this. And also a lot of adult ed classes in various areas so that they will be able to enter other jobs as well, wherever the openings are. What about education for kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've done so many stories about the shortage of ELL programs and yeah, so, so how are, how will elementary, secondary schools sort of Yasmin, respond? how did you learn English? 
I learned English when I was um, about six years old, actually. My parents spoke to me strictly, like, completely in Arabic until then. And then I would speak to them in English, and they would respond back in Arabic. Um, I was in ESL for um, basically all of elementary school. I became really, really fluent and really, really, I became really good at it. But I still had to keep going to ESL simply because my parents didn't know English. Um, and so that, that was like a form that you had to write that's like, you know, what's your parents' first language? And if it wasn't English, then you had to be in ESL, no matter your level of English proficiency or not. And so I was there for a really long time, and one of the th- like being in ESL, being around those um, the people who didn't speak English, I formed a community with them. But with the other members of this, the other the school children, we were looked at as outsiders, and we were looked at as like we had to like get out of class for a certain amount of hours a day, and um, they would we'd come back then, and we'd always be as a group together, but we'd always be very different, separated from the other students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the MCCSC also is um, that. Mr. Gian, who's, who's sort of in charge of all of the diversity issues, is ready. He's already working on preparing not not just things the new students will need, but things that the existing students should understand. And he's also got some programs planned to work with the whole family very mm-hmm. often so the parents can understand what the children are, are learning and so forth. And MCPL, the library also, of course, has a lot of really good programs that have the same kind of um, approach. Stan, any follow-up? Uh, I was really uh, thinking that that, that requires um, usually a, a fairly long period of this kind of uh, training or, or education. And um, I thought I heard earlier that the, the period of support from the federal government w- was only a few months long. Yeah, the, the the period of support, direct financial support for, like, rent is only 90 days. But the language support they're going to get from Exodus can go on for up to five years. So they'll be getting language classes that whole time. Um, you know, as always, the adults are a lot slower than the kids mm-hmm. to learn a new language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took my son to the former Soviet Union when he was six. He was fully integrated into a Georgian-speaking classroom mm-hmm. in six months. So, uh, you know, the kids will catch on fast and, and, and I think play important roles in helping integrate their parents. Thank you. All right, Stan. Thanks a lot for the call. 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And I know you spoke a little bit about this earlier, but just the screening process and how it's different. Can we? Can you sort of just deep dive on that and explain what the screening process is going to be like? It, uh, well, first let me say this, and then yeah. I'm going to turn this to Elizabeth. I know there was um, a discussion in the paper today um, <clears throat> about a talk, and there was discussion of refugees once they're here, bringing in relatives and so forth. And I wanted to mention that that can happen, but... If a, if a refugee recommends a relative to come, that relative would go into the category of refugees, have the same vetting as any other refugees, which Elizabeth will be able to describe much better, and also will not affect the total number of refugees um, allowed into the area. If we're capping it at, say, 60, then if a relative does pass the standards, that would count toward the 60. And there also are... Um, when um, I know in the paper it said that the person would have to be within 50 miles or 100 miles under certain circumstances, that's determined by Exodus. Exodus does place them in a particular place. They're not free to settle anywhere they wish, and it's unlikely Exodus would 
come anywhere close to settling them 100 miles away because Exodus has to serve them. And that would be out of the question. But I'd, I'd like to leave it to Elizabeth yeah. to talk about the vetting. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the vetting process that happens before they arrive. So mm-hmm. most of the people who are will be coming will be coming from um, refugee camps rather than self-settled urban refugees. Right. So they will be fairly well known to UNHCR. And they're going through a screening process that is run by the United Nations in which they go through multiple interviews over about 18 months. And their family members, each family member is interviewed separately. And then all the information they give is cross-checked against a database of information gleaned from other interviews. And if there are any discrepancies, the person is no longer approved. The whole family gets kicked out of the, the process. So those interviews go on multiple times over 18 months. And during that time, uh, UNHCR collects biometric data, fingerprints, retinal scans, and so on. Those are also run against um, UNHCR's databases. Then UNHCR forwards people's names on, um, in this case, to the U.S. State Department. And and the State Department sends it to Homeland Security, which starts the whole process over again. So they do another big round of interviews, um, multiple interviews over months to see if the story is the same over multiple months. They go back through biometric data checking. And so it's very difficult to pass that screening process. Average wait now is over three years. And it's important to keep in mind that we're taking less than 1% of applicants for refugee status. Mm-hmm. So the people who make it through this screening process are have been extremely carefully vetted, um, more than any other visitor to the United States. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and very different from how it's the numbers in Europe and or how it's done in Europe. It's a whole different process. Yeah, in Europe, people came in without any kind of background check. They mm-hmm. came as asylum seekers, and so right. there was no kind of vetting done before they arrived. They just arrived, and Germany in particular had to manage them. Um, so our system is very different. They pass all their checks before they arrive here. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call from Wendy from Bloomington. Wendy? Hi. Um, first, I wanted to tell Yasmin how important I think that people in the education system respect her experience because I think it's really silly for the fluent kids to be kept in the ENL or ESL classes. So I hope people are listening <laughs> to what her experience And I also wanted to ask her if there's a way that wouldn't feel negative for somebody who appreciates the variety of world cultures in language, arts, music, cuisine, in so many ways, if there's a way that we or I could ask a person who, for some reason I ascertain, does have roots in another country, whether it be parents, grandparents, or themselves, because when I hear a foreign accent, which wouldn't be the case with Yasmin, or if I hear something of a family history, I would love to hear where the person comes from and find out something about their experience. Absolutely. So um, I feel like there that comes to a conversation that, um, between 
um, cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. So when you appropriate a culture or when you, um, for me in my instance, when you ask me like, where are you really from? Um, a lot of times it's not coming out of a place of, oh, I'm really interested in your culture. I want to know where you're from and things like that. Rather, you're different than me. Let me find out how different you are from me. And then um, depending on what you say, I'm going to implement some stereotypes upon you or something like that. And I feel like um, especially with a lot of parents, like my parents especially, when you ask, if you were to ask them where are they really from, they would not tell you. They would tell you I'm from America and that's simply that and they would leave it at that. But it depends on where you're coming from where they would be like, oh, okay, so this person seems sincere and genuine. I'm going to tell them I'm from Darfur or I'm from Sudan. Um, this is a little bit of my culture and things like that. But it come, you, you have to come at it out of a place of true, genuine, I appreciate your culture and I don't see you as less than. So. Yes. Okay, and is there any wording that you think sounds better than um, where is your family of origin from? I think that um, I think that if you are genuine and you really care that your wording is not necessarily important, it's the intonation and the, the way that you say it. Okay, great, because I have asked people, and I, I as a person who am originally from the East Coast, have been asked, so... Where are you from? <laughs> and so I've always felt saddened if people don't want to say, oh, I'm from so, such and such. And so I, I hope that somebody can help me figure out the appropriate wording that helps me express what I am sincerely hoping to express. Did you think, does, yeah, yes, Thanks, ben, that if someone says, asks you where you're from, if a person says I'm from America or from Indiana, um, that maybe it's best just to leave it at that. That's how that person has chosen to identify herself. And Absolutely. I think that with um, a lot of refugees or people who are immigrants that um, they're not given the respect that they should be given. And so and they're not necessarily dignified as well. Um, so when they at, when they say something like if you ask them where they're from and they, they say I'm from Fort Wayne or I'm from Indianapolis, then that should be that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is brings up a larger issue, which is how best to help people who are coming here. And to say that this has to be a refugee driven, refugee led process is really important. It's, I've seen this happen over and over where people imagine what refugees need and give them help based on that imagination. And it's not always accurate. So being Absolutely. really attuned to what they need and want, responding to their requests, letting them turn us down mm -hmm. if we offer help they don't need or want, it's going to be really important. Yes. I'd also like to say how, um, how critical that is to let them turn you down and let them say no to you because that gives them an element of choice, which really, really helps. Like That really helps them in reintegration and also helping them redignify themselves. Mm -hmm. Part of the, I spent about 16 months living in a refugee camp. and. Um, Part of the experience is that your ability to choose the way you live is just stripped away from you, right? Mm -hmm. You eat what you're given, you wear what you're given, you do mm -hmm. what you're told. And part of reintegrating into a community is about taking the ability to choose your way of life mm -hmm. back again. And part of the gift that we can give them is helping them become mm -hmm. the deciders of their own life again when they've had that taken away from them before. So mm -hmm. we're looking forward to that. 
I just just what are one of these camps like? You you know, obviously they're supposed to be temporary. They're not. So then, what are the conditions like in one of these refugee camps? You know, they're widely discrepant. So the one I was in was for internally displaced people in the Republic of Georgia, and people lived in small cinder block cottages. But one of my graduate students has been working in a camp in uh, for Congolese people in Tanzania. And there, they're forbidden to build any permanent structures. They have to build their own houses, but they can't bake bricks or use lumber and nails. So their houses are made of unbaked brick, their huts, really, and they wash away every rainy season and have to be rebuilt. Um, and the reason that they're forbidden by UNHCR and the Tanzanian government to build permanent housing is so that the camp can be destroyed in an instant, bulldozed over. If they can get the refugees out, they'll bulldoze the camp down and it will be gone. Um, the Syrians are living in widely varying conditions, but many of this, the camps for Syrians now have grown quite, quite large. So um, Zatri camp in Jordan is now over half a million people. Um, and the main street has been ironically named Champs-Élysées. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, people there are living mostly in prefabricated container homes, which um, it's very hot there, have no heating or air conditioning. They're in the middle of the desert. Um, they're really far from any other urban area. Um, other people, um, not the ones, will be getting people probably from Jordan or Lebanon. But other Syrians are living in, you know, muddy rained out, flooded tent camps where food is in shortage in Greece. I mean, these are conditions which are not humane. They are not okay for people to live in. And one of the things that we have the opportunity to do is give people back a a human standard Mm -hmm. of living, to think about them as human beings instead of thinking about them as problems to be Mm -hmm. contained somewhere. So, so this lawsuit that's being considered right now where Pence is saying he doesn't want any federal money spent on uh, the Syrian refugees, it, is the program here going to be affected by that at all? Is this going to be put on hold until that lawsuit, until a settlement, whatever, until decisions are reached? No, no. I think the appeal is to free up, is, is to hold that money now because it's been freed up and um, the ACLU was, you know, was working with Exodus to get that money freed up and that's being appealed. But, you know, I mean, if, if by some chance, which seems very unlikely, we, you know, um, the case is lost, then, um, yeah, then we'd have to, then, then it would affect. So when um, uh, the Pence administration took this to federal district court, mm-hmm. um, the judge there, they asked the judge there for a stay, which would have right. let them withdraw the money um, from Exodus's programs pending the appeal. Right. And the judge there was convinced enough that um, withdrawing money just from Syrians was discrimination on the basis of national origin, which is unconstitutional, that she denied the stay. So when this went to the Court of Appeals, the Pence administration asked again for a stay, which would let them withhold the money only from Syrians. The Court of Appeals is, it looks like from oral arguments, is also leaning towards the interpretation that this is discrimination on the basis of national origin, therefore unconstitutional, and so has denied a stay. 
So right now that money is flowing through to Exodus and they are able to use it to yeah. help resettle Syrians. Yeah. And I'm not sure they've given a, deci- a, f- a final decision, right? They have No, we're waiting the on appeal. the decision from mm-hmm. the Court of Appeals. Right. All right. We have about 10 minutes to go. The voices you're hearing today are Elizabeth Dunn, an associate professor of international studies at the School of Global and International Studies, Diane Legomsky, the chair from the Bloomington Refugee Support Network, and Yasmin Fasher, a resettled refugee from Sudan and current student at Indiana University. We're talking about refugee resettlement. It sounds like a lot of what we've talked about today kind of boils down to education and respect. That's what it sounds like when we we go all the way through that. And the education portion of it, I, I want to look at that in two ways, I guess. First, um, what's happening to the, the refugees, the 20 families that are chosen to come to Bloomington? What kind of uh, preparation will they have before they come here? And the second part of the program is, is uh, the second part of the question is, a lot of these things that we've talked about today have educated me a lot about how we should be um, engaging refugees and what kind of help we should be offering and how we should, as a community, try to welcome people into our community and how that education going to be transferred to the people of Bloomington. Yeah. So first, <laughs> the refugees. So um, it's very often true that even if they're approved by UNHCR and they're forwarded on to Homeland Security, it's not a done deal that they're going. So they aren't receiving a lot of education. They'll get an orientation program when they arrive. I think there's a pre-departure orientation that's a couple of days maybe. But they are not getting a lot of education about the United States before they come. Most of that will happen when they get here. The interesting thing, though, is how active many of them are in educating themselves. And so in this wired age where everybody has a cell phone, um, I see lots of refugees who are teaching themselves, particularly languages, before they arrive by mm-hmm. YouTube lessons. <laughs> so um, some, some of them may have a, a, a head up on there. And then, um, you know, we're doing a lot to try and prepare to educate the Bloomington community about who these people are and to think about them not as generic refugees, one just like another, but as um, people with their own biographies and histories. And we're going to try and do a lot of community outreach to teach people about the countries that they come from and the conflicts that force them to move. Mm-hmm. Yasmin, maybe yeah. you want to talk a little bit about what kind of education you think Bloomingtonians need to get ready. <laughs> Um, I think that one of the most important things is cultural competency and to understand that like no culture is better than the the next or no culture is Mm -hmm. different. I mean, not different. They are obviously different, but no one's better. And so and I also think that one of the most important um, factors that is often very ignored is intersectionality, where, yes, you're a refugee, but that when time can become um, an an invisible identity. But there's also, you know, race, religion, socioeconomic class and things like that that make up who a person is and there's so much to that but when you're only looking at their one identity and ignoring all the rest you kind of tend Mm -hmm. to um, generalize them and all refugees are the same or all refugees are like this and all refugees want this and that where you know different countries different places and there's a plethora of different ways to approach it so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a big difference between an architect from Damascus and a farmer from Goma so um, it's really important that we not think about this as you know one group of people Right. Okay, mm-hmm. we have a phone call from Pete. Pete from Bloomington. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Thank you for this program. This is an excellent program. Um, at, at the refugee meeting, uh, Elizabeth gave an excellent discussion on Sharia law 
there's a group of people that are very concerned about Sharia law with the perception that the refugees that are coming in form their own network and Sharia law will take and, and make the Constitution obsolete and force other people to be part of Sharia law. Could you uh, just go to that again, Elizabeth? That was an excellent uh, Yeah, that's, um, I understand that there are fears, but let's talk a little bit about what Sharia law is and what Sharia courts are. Um, this is a religious law in the same way that Catholics have canon law and Mormons have their own laws, and it only applies inside that religion, that is to Muslims who are voluntarily participating in it. So when Muslims come to the United States, all the local, state, and national laws supersede any Absolutely. internal religious yep. rules, right? So. Um, there was somebody at the meeting who was saying, well, there are 88 Sharia law courts in London. Okay, but there are also, I don't know, how many Catholic courts? Um, there are nine Mormon courts of bishops. Religions have these kinds of internal governance procedures, but our laws in the United States will continue to apply here. Yes. All right, Pete. Thank you, that's excellent. My last question is, 95% of the people in Bloomington come from immigrant families three or four generations ago, is there really much difference between these immigrants coming in and the people 150 years ago, 100 years ago, that were despised, the Jews, the Catholics, the Irish, the Poles? Uh, is there really any difference between them because they're Asian versus European? The, the, That's my last question. Thank you. There, there isn't a, certainly not a difference in that sense. Um, these are refugees, not immigrants, but uh, there, there will be one difference um, that we need to be aware of, and that will be that the people coming here, um, for the most part, really will have been through an incredibly lengthy time, probably a lengthy time in resettlement camps that Elizabeth described, have coming from you know war-torn areas. Um, you know, no, no. You know, immigrants of generally who came here in the past are coming from difficult circumstances. But the, these are really pretty. These recent ones, pre pretty traumatic. Um, and we want to appreciate that. That's another reason why Yasmin and Elizabeth have both been talking about don't force things on the refugees. Be there as a friend. Um, you know, listen to them. Give them a sense of ownership. Everything and certainly respect. But compassion is is going to be critical here, especially we, we do have some uh, connecting with some psychologists who will be dealing with childhood trauma. So they, these are people who have really come from extremely tough circumstances. But other than that, to get to the real heart of the question is absolutely, we, we all came here from elsewhere and we need to remember that. Absolutely. We only have about 90 seconds to go and I just want to give each of you about 30 seconds of that to, for a takeaway, a last takeaway. What do you hope that our listeners learn from this program today, Yasmin? Kind of going off the last question that was asked, um, the, yeah, the last question that was asked, um, a quote that I heard was, immigration is always been a problem in the United States, just ask the Native Americans. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I think we're in a moment when there are so many bad things happening in the world, and this is our chance to do something really good, to really bring back yes. compassion and dignity and respect for people. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Yes. Diane? And Bloomington is ready, ready and willing and very able to welcome these refugees, to, to welcome and support them in every way. Uh, local government is happy to do it. It really is going to bring out the best in us, and we'll be touching the best in the refugees. It's a good thing. All right. I think we're out of time. But thank I want you. to thank you very much for being here with us today, Elizabeth Dunn, Diane Legomsky, and Yasmin Fasher, uh, for 
um, Sarah Whitmire, who's been here <laughs> asking questions, and also our producer, Drew Dodlin, and engineer, Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company. Fiber internet, HD and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.